0: The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. Today I want to say a special thank you to a friend of our church and and our neighbor here, Rob Perry. Rob and his wife Kristen um, participate here, and he fills in for us when Steve Wingo is away. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to express your appreciation for him stepping in. You know, of all the world religions, both ancient and modern, the most recognized religious symbol in the world is the Christian cross. And it doesn't always look the same. Sometimes it's just the Latin cross with a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. But sometimes it looks like an orthodox cross. Some of you may be familiar with that kind of cross. It, of course, has the traditional vertical beam and horizontal beam in the middle upon which the hands of Jesus would have been nailed. But at the top, it includes that sign which said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. On the bottom of the cross, though, it has the place where Jesus' feet would be nailed. But as you'll notice, it's not perfectly level. It's intentionally at a diagonal angle. Remembering the part of the story where the thief on one side derided Jesus, ridiculed Jesus, and rejected him, while the thief on the other placed their faith in him and asked him to remember him, indicating the eternal destiny of those two perspectives. Some are familiar with the Jerusalem cross. It's actually made of four tau crosses, as you can see here, The four tau crosses are T-shaped crosses which intersect at their base to create a larger structure. And then there are four smaller Greek crosses in its wings that represent either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or some say it represents that Jesus said for His disciples to take the message of God's forgiveness through His life and death to the four corners of the earth. Then if you attend a Roman Catholic church or even a Lutheran or some other churches, you will sometimes see a cross that is not bare but a cross that depicts Jesus upon it which of course we call a crucifix. And that's because in Roman Catholic theology whenever they celebrate the Mass or Holy Communion, they believe that Jesus' sacrifice is made present again. Therefore, He is present on the cross in the moment of communion that His forgiveness may be received by us. In the same way that we've got lots of different visual symbols of the cross, when you read the 27 books of the New Testament, you find that there are different words that are used to describe what it means. For Christians, there is a biblical and theological answer to that question. And it is, the cross was the means by which Jesus experienced our suffering and death and initiated humanity's reconciliation with God. It's more than just a historical symbol, it's actually a sign of what God has accomplished for our hope and for our future. Each one of the words in the New Testament, it might be ransom or substitution or payment, can basically be boiled down into four main categories. And sometimes when you as a Christian are asked to talk about your faith or you're given an opportunity to talk about your faith, I thought this series might be helpful to explain the significance of the cross through four primary cross words. We began last week with the word receive. We remembered Paul's letter to the church in Rome when he said, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And that is a gift to be received, which was the first word. God has accomplished it all through Jesus. We don't have to do anything but simply to receive what God wants to credit to our human account through Jesus. Well, today we move to a very different kind of concept, and I'd like to propose to you that it's captured in the word recognize. We read this morning from the book of Hebrews to open up worship, Hebrews chapter 4. And the book of Hebrews is different than all the other books in the New Testament because it's not an account of the life of Jesus, a biography like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not one of those. It's not a history book like the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church for the first three decades. And it's also not like one of the Pauline epistles that's written to Galatia or Corinth or Ephesus. In fact, it doesn't identify an actual author at all and it doesn't say it's written to a specific location. It's a 13 chapter sermon. And If you read the book of Hebrews, you realize there are a couple of things you can learn about the audience based on a couple of the themes in the message. One theme is that the Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus but who have a Jewish background need to hold firmly to Jesus Christ while they're going through persecution. And you hear that now in chapter 4. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Great words of encouragement. Hold firmly. Approach God's throne. You can receive mercy. You can find grace. What is the significance of the word "recognize" for this teaching in Hebrews chapter 4? Well... It begins by going back to your days in middle school world history or perhaps freshman year of high school world history to remember a little bit about the world into which that letter was written. We use a term to describe the ancient Near East during this time of history in the first century. We refer to it as the Greco-Roman world. It remembers that about four centuries before Jesus was born, Alexander the Great came down from Greece and conquered the ancient Near East and brought Greek philosophy and language and culture. After all, the New Testament is actually written in Koine Greek. But also in the first century, right before Jesus was born, just a few decades, the Romans took over and Julius Caesar brought down Roman culture. And so we get the term Greco-Roman culture. And you can see vestiges of that. If any of you have ever been to Athens, Greece, you could visit the Temple of the Olympian Zeus and many others like this one that you can visit to remind you of that great ancient Greco-Roman culture. Well, I want to take you for a moment underneath the images of architecture in that part of the world to two primary philosophical messages that everybody would have been familiar with. In ancient Greece, there were two schools of thought about how to make sense of the world specifically as it relates to the Greek gods. They were called the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now think of this as almost like kind of partisan perspectives on the world. The Stoics had a worldview that said the primary attribute of the Greek gods is apathy because the gods cannot be influenced. So they believed that the gods could see what was happening in the world but were completely unaffected by it. The reason they said that is because if you as a human have power to influence the feelings of the gods, then you may have some power over the gods, and they could never conceive of something like that. Therefore, they said these gods are feelingless. Epicureans had a little bit different perspective. They said that the gods lived in perfect happiness and blessedness and are unaware of our world. They were removed from, they were not observing, they were detached from it, and therefore... The gods didn't care about what was happening for humanity. to humanity for a little bit different reason. Well, the Stoics had their feelingless gods. The Epicureans had their completely detached gods. And therefore, the dominant worldview for at least five centuries, half a millennia before Jesus, this is what people heard over and over again and over again. Plutarch, one of the religious Greeks, said that it was blasphemous to imagine that the gods in all of their eternal power would bother themselves with the affairs of the human world. And I actually think that there are many people that have those views of God today. Some of you may remember a great tragedy that happened in May of 2008 in the Christian music industry when Stephen Curtis Chapman and Mary Beth Chapman experienced profound family tragedy when one of their daughters, Maria, uh, who was just a little girl at the time, around four years old, I believe, five perhaps, at a family gathering, one of the older children was pulling into the home and as a child will sometimes, oblivious to the dangers around them, quickly ran in front of the vehicle and was struck. And they rushed her away to the hospital. And as soon as news broke, I mean, everybody who heard it just was moved with a terrible sense of compassion about this terrible tragedy. And unfortunately, she did not survive. And it was a profound experience of grief and loss for that family, as we can all imagine. But I remember reading about it on Twitter in 2008 and clicking on a religious news service that had posted the article, and a few comments down, somebody made a comment which said something like, I guess the God he wrote all those songs to couldn't do anything to save her. Is that Stoicism? Or is it Epicureanism? The worldview for some people is alive and well. And into that kind of worldview, Christianity introduces a radically different alternative, which says, there is a God who is motivated by compassion to the point that this God entered into the affairs of human history as a human being. And didn't just enter as a human being to enjoy a position of notoriety and political power and wealth and ease, but willingly dispossessed many of His heavenly attributes so that He could stand beside humanity at its weakest and most painful point. God became like a regular human being and His name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so, I don't know if you heard the way that the author begins to describe Jesus in His role He says that Jesus in verse 14, the one who became a human like us, is a great high priest. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Actually, some translations say traveled through the heavens. I went back and began to think, "Why, why does this author say that Jesus is a great high priest? And so I went back to the first great high priest and I thought maybe with Aaron, The brother of Moses will see something about his role in ancient Israel that will teach us something about Jesus, who is the great high priest who travels through the heavens. After Israel had been freed from slavery and was wandering in the desert, God gave them the instructions for the tabernacle and told them to ordain priests. And priests, like Aaron, the very first, were given special garments, they were given special training. They had special hats, they had a special breastplate upon them, and they had special roles like sharing the incense in the sanctuary. Behind Aaron here, you can see small cattle that are being prepared for sacrifice because the high priest would was a mediator between Israel and a holy God. They were the ones tasked with helping Israel have a relationship with God altogether. This particular rendering of him captures many of those features and much about his role as a high priest. It's kind of hard for us to imagine that there was a time when the people of God, whether Jewish or Christian, believed that they could not have just a direct channel of access to God. Sometimes I think we in the 21st century do a disservice by missing out on what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. That doesn't mean that we're scared of God. It means we live with an appropriate sense of being awestruck at who God is and that we can talk to God. It's not like ordering a Subway sandwich. You know, I'd like I have that kind of bread and not this. i like those toppings and a little bit more of that and a little bit less of this and get it exactly the way you want it. Some people treat prayer like that. Let me explain or give you an example of how Israel treated the God they were praying to. In Psalm 29, listen to these words. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly kings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forest bare, and in His temple all say glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. Israel had that view of God from down here that God is sitting on the throne of the universe and through a single word could change or destroy the very nature of the things that God created. And the place where they could just hope to have a little bit of that experience of God was in the temple. In this image of the Temple of Solomon, which is depicted according to the biblical descriptions, at the green arrow is where the children of Israel, the human beings, could enter into that structure. They'd go in the main room and they could leave offerings and they could hear songs being sung, the Hillel. But there was a place where they were not welcome to go. It's indicated by the red arrow. It's called the Holy of Holies. Only the priests were allowed there. And in fact, they were only allowed once per year. And only the high priest among the priests could go there. And they went through tremendous painstaking detail to make sure their lives were clean and sinless because the very presence of God was deadly. And if they disregarded the instructions of God about how to enter into that space, they could be struck dead. And so the priest would take offerings from the people and bring them into the Holy of Holies before God, and then take the forgiveness that was promised based on those sacrificial offerings and take them back to the people of God. The priest represented, generally speaking, the people of Israel to God, and the priest represented God to the people of Israel. And so the priest would face the people of Israel, and he would accept their prayers and their offerings, and he would be the representative figure to turn and face God on their behalf. And then all the hopes that Israel would have that God would intervene in their life or bring them help or hope, the priest would face God and then represent that to the people in Israel. And the author of Hebrews says that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. But it's not in Solomon's temple. It's not in King Herod's temple. It is in the temple of the heavens that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is transcending time and space by representing humanity in the very presence of God. Jesus brings us to God and God to us. And so he uses three specific words to describe how to do this. They're beautiful and powerful and deep words in the Greek. He says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. I'd like to unpack those words briefly and allow you to imagine what that says about the nature of Jesus Christ. The first word, "sympatheo" in the Greek means to feel sympathy with, to have compassion, to be touched with a feeling of. This is not just a person who observes the hardship of others and says, you know, that's really too bad that they're going through that. This is a person who enters in alongside them and says, you're hurting, and I'm identifying with you so closely that I can feel that hurt with you. I'm sharing that hurt with you. The second word, weakness, is a feebleness of both mind or body. It could be a disease, frailty, some kind of infirmity or weakness. And then finally, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was proving that He could be faithful even in the midst of all of our human limitations. And He did not give in to temptation to sin. Jesus does not perform the function of the high priest representing humanity's needs to God and the hope of God back to humanity out of the function of an office that He holds. Instead, what He's saying is that Jesus has lived out this experience of being a high priest by participating in everything that we go through and bringing that into the very presence of God. He carries the human condition in his own life before God and says, God, they're like me. How in the world could Jesus accomplish something like that? Bringing the needs of humanity into the presence of a holy God carrying the infirmities of humanity into the presence of a holy God. He did it through the cross. So when you think about the past, present, or potential future pain in your life, think for a second. Have you ever been truly hungry? Have you ever had deep emotional or physical pain? Has anyone ever abused you? Have you ever felt true loneliness? Or carried an open wound? Has anybody ever slandered you, smeared your name through the mud? Have you ever had a mental distress and you felt like the ground underneath your feet was shaking and shifting? Have you ever felt overwhelmed with emotional distress? Have you or are you, if not you will, grieve deeply a loss and you can't have that person back? Anybody ever lied to you? Lied about you? You remember that stinging pain of embarrassment? or that cold ache of rejection? Have you been misunderstood? Have you been abandoned by people who were supposed to stick with you? Or have you been betrayed by someone you were sure that they would be with you? If any of that describes your past, your present, or potentially your future, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with any of those things. Instead, we have one who was tempted in every one of those categories and stories and situations, yet he was sinless. The result, then, is an invitation. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need, in many of those situations I read, or others that were not. The word, the cross word today, is not just to receive what Jesus did, but to recognize it. Because Jesus is not up there on the cross carrying out something only for us to receive. He is right next to us, identifying with us at the lowest point of our lives. William Barclay, who is a well-known biblical commentator who lived in the last century, tells the story of having a colleague at the University of Glasgow, Scotland. His colleague was named John Foster. This is a picture of John Foster. And William Barclay says that one day John Foster left the university to go home for the evening. And when he walked through his front door, he heard the sound of crying and went around the corner and there he found his teenage daughter, And she was weeping. It was the late 1930s. He approached her and said, why are you crying? He could hear the news broadcasts in the background from the radio as the world was preparing to come to the brink of war. He said, why are you crying? And she said, I just heard them say that Japanese tanks had invaded Canton, China. You know, most people would hear something like that and say, I hate to hear that. But, you know, even though it's unfortunate, it's on the other side of the world. It's very far away from here. Even people like politicians or leaders who have a grim sense of foreboding that an invasion like that might affect the stability of geopolitical tensions around the world. To them, it would not make much of a personal difference. Why was this young girl, a teenager, in tears sharing with her father why that bothered her so much. It's because she had been born in Canton, China. Her parents had been missionaries. And when she heard Canton on the radio, it wasn't some faraway exotic land. It was a former home. It was a place where she'd gone to school and had a nurse and played with friends, and had teachers. The difference was for her that she had been there. And it affected her. And there's no part of the human experience, according to Hebrews, where God in Jesus Christ cannot say with tears in His eyes, I get it. I remember. I've been there. That's why you and I can approach the throne of God with confidence so that we could get mercy and help in time of need because Jesus was the recipient of mercy and help in His time of need. If you've never really considered and recognized that truth about the cross and suffering of Jesus Christ as being next to you in human weakness and difficulty, I encourage you to consider the merits of that today because there is not another religious worldview, ancient, or modern, that brings that word of hope. Not a single one that's anywhere close to it. Christians can say with confidence, because of the life Jesus lived, that Jesus extends His hand to us, a scarred hand to us, and leads us into the presence of a holy God. Recognize Jesus on the cross. Understand that everything you've been through He proceeded for you. And you may find that your perspective on faith will never ever be the same. God, we could never through human words plumb the depths of your grace, but we do stand back with an appropriate biblical fear to simply be struck with awe for all you were willing to demonstrate and endure for our sake. How could we not feel loved? How could we not feel important? How could we ever begin to think that what we go through in our pain does not matter to you? Give us eyes to recognize the depth and the breadth of your love given on the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.